Hello, and welcome to the Writers' Forum, a weekly production of WRBH Reading Radio. I'm the owner of Tubby & Coo's Mid-City Bookshop and your host, Candace Huber. This week, I'm talking to Michael Zapata, whose new novel is The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. Full of ideas such as displacement and exile, grief and loss, family, connection, friendship, self-discovery, climate change, the power of storytelling, and so much more, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau is an unusual and delightful book featuring New Orleans that pushes the boundaries of literature. Michael is a former New Orleans resident and founding editor of the award-winning Make Literary magazine. He is the recipient of an Illinois Arts Council Award for Fiction and the City of Chicago D-Case Individual Artist Program Award. As an educator, he taught English in high schools servicing dropout students. Michael moved to New Orleans in 2014, where he completed and sold this book while he was working at Tulane as an academic advisor. He currently lives in Chicago with his family. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for being here on our show today. Thank you so much for very excited, very excited. So, uh, the lost book of Adana Moreau. This is a huge book that packs a punch in a short period of time, and it's one of the most unusual books that I've read in a while. So, I'm curious to hear about it. C- can you tell us a little bit about this book, the Dominicana, and how the idea for this book came about in your head? Yeah. So, so essentially, the novel uh, is about a Dominican exile in 1916 who ends up in New Orleans. And in the course of of learning how to be an American, she also becomes a cult classic science fiction writer. She she publishes a novel called Lost City to some local and, and national acclaim. And before she passes away, she, she finishes and then destroys a sequel called A Model Earth. Um, so the novel itself follows sort of the life of the mystery of the sequel, which in the year 2004 ends up in Chicago at the doorstep of a Israeli refugee named Saul, who was raised by his grandfather, a historian and teacher in Chicago. So as Saul looks to, to, to solve the mystery of how to deliver this manuscript to Adana Moreau's uh, only living heir, his son, we sort of uncover a lot of the history of of the the 20th century and some of the early 21st century. And it does lead him to New Orleans, um, just post-Katrina. So I always like to think of it as um, a literary mystery that takes us through the 20th century. Yeah, and that's definitely what it is. Um, So let's talk about the so you create in this book an entirely fictional canon of fiction <laughs> and so i'm wondering how you came up with it's like you as a writer had to come up with all of these ideas for books yes. and so how, like how did that genesis come about and <laughs> and ha- of this whole separate canon that was fascinating to me yeah that, like so we only get one life right <laughs> we can only write right. so many so many books, and this one took 10 years, so I'll never get to the books I always want to write. <laughs> um, it's also it kind of pulls, it pulls somewhat from this literary tradition in Latin America, uh, especially from Borges, a lot of the boom and post-boom um, people who sort of inhabited this fictional space where they were creating imaginary canons. Um, so it was definitely an idea stolen from Borges, because he did that 
as the master, right? So and I'm like, he must have had so much fun doing that. So I wanted to sort of inhabit that voice as much as possible. Um, but also I think it relates very well to the whole concept of parallel universes. And books, when you open a book, you know, you're essentially entering into a parallel world. But also when you're entering an imaginary book or an imaginary summary of a book, you're entering into worlds that may or may not exist. Um, so I think it just, I had a lot of fun further playing with this idea of what ifs um, and sort of entering this imaginary canon, which is placed right next to our literary canon, um, I think built off those ideas of what ifs and parallel worlds. Yeah, and it was it was so cool. And really, like, this book is just, like, it's a book that loves books. And <laughs> yeah. I loved that about it. And it's obsessed with stories. I mean, we have these worlds within worlds within worlds and stories within stories within stories. And it's, it's just really, really interesting. And the storytelling and listening to other people's stories, that's all really important in this book. And so I wanted to ask what... I guess, made you make stories so important and storytelling and listening? Yeah. And, and why do you think stories are so powerful? Uh, absolutely. This is such, such a fun and, and, and wonderful question because um, it is, in a sense, it is a book, in a sense, that is obsessed with the idea of storytelling. You know, and not only is this act of survival, but also sort of as an act of, of, of human nature, I, I'm very, very, you know, since I've been young, I've been very, very much interested in oral tradition. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the book takes place in New Orleans and Chicago, and I really view them as sister cities in the way in which stories are told, whether they're told on the street, whether they're told in an alley, whether they're told in a bar or among friends. There's this great tradition um, oral tradition in both cities, and I think that stems from both being port cities for refugees and immigrants um, for hundreds of years, um, and, and, and people coming to a new country and figuring out how to tell their own story, often in a very new language. And so you have this tradition, this oral historical tradition, and I often think of Studs Terkel, who is a great Chicago figure in oral history. Um, and his extraordinary ability to record history through first-person narratives by interviewing people, interviewing bank tellers and teachers and activists and artists and uh, politicians, you know, across the socioeconomic divide and across generations recording an oral tradition of, uh, of an entire city. And he, he did that exceptionally well, and I really took that to heart when sitting down and, and trying to write a novel in which every character, as much as possible, was given space on the stage to sort of paint a, a portrait of themselves, to, to, to give um, their own oral historical tradition um, to the larger piece. So I, I, I'm ecstatic that that came out <laughs> for you as as a reader because it's really meaningful to me that um places like chicago and new orleans which have this great tradition um are given the space uh, to tell their own stories absolutely and so what stories did you listen to in creating this book did you get to listen to any cool stories yourself yeah, you know, so one of the things I did initially when looking at the historical sections in the novel, 
um, in New Orleans and Chicago. I spent quite some time in the uh, Chicago Historical Museum, and I spent some time in the French Quarter with all the extraordinary historical societies um, <laughs> in the museum there. Um, and I actually was able to sit down and, and get just exceptional help um, from people. As you know, New Orleans has this, this just this, this thread of the past that is, can be pulled forward quite quickly when you ask people about it's, you know, the past three, four hundred years. So I found these oral traditions of exiles from Haiti, from the Dominican Republic, um, all the way the 1800s and 1900s, um, largely in the Caribbean from Colombia, um, a lot of Latin American immigrants who came to the city early, and I, I sat down and was able to read a lot of their um, recorded histories, which was an absolute, absolute pleasure to be able to do so, and, and, and it gives you this domestic and wonderful view into people's lives who have been gone for some time. Um, and just sitting down with those, I think, really impacted the way I started to write the novel. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. That uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was just just an absolute pleasure, and 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 of course, so much of it you don't use, but of course, it builds this sort of larger city in your head. Um, and in addition to that, I was um, you know I've been coming to New, or- New Orleans since I've been eighteen, my whole life, two three times a year. I've lived in the city. Um, Post Katrina, I did come down um, to interview those who were returning, um, activists and uh, people rebuilding their homes and artists and writers. And and it was through that process of of talking and interviewing, which I didn't have any intention for the interviews. Um, I I just wanted to come down and talk to people. And I found that some years later when I started the novel, that also very much impacted um, the writing as well. And I, I think for me that was one of the absolute hardest, obviously, um, parts of the novel to write because you want to do justice to the people you've talked to. Absolutely. Um, if possible. And more than that, let them speak and let you as the writer um, kind of sit in the back. Right. And um, and so so after Katrina, when you came here, you just came here to talk to people with so you you said you had no intention of like using it for anything necessarily. Yeah, I was run at that time. I was running a um, literary magazine called Make a Literary Magazine, and we were working on our second issue. And so I was down in in New Orleans because we were talking to specific um, organizations who were helping rebuild. And so when I was talking to the organizations for that, um, it was really to get space in the, in the magazine for them to tell their own story. So it was not my interviews. It was we were giving space in the magazine for people to reach out and tell their own stories. But in that process, I, I just started talking to people and interviewing people. Um, and, it, it, you know, it was one of the distinctly, I think, most challenging things to do as a writer to, to just really want to talk to people and not know, um, you know, to tell people that this might, we might never use this, but let, let's sort of heal and let's talk and uh, listen. Um, and it became this very just straightforward thing. I, I think that um, the, the idea of listening to, which is in the novel, definitely stands out. And oftentimes it's a very cliche thing, right? Like, we're going to listen to each other. <laughs> um, 
but at the end of at the end of the day, it, it's the first step towards organizing for something that's better in rebuilding. Absolutely. I think listening is super important and it is important in the novel as well. And I, I just I just think that the stories and the storytelling and the importance of that in the book uh, hit me just as a person who's around books, as someone who owns a bookstore, as someone who yeah. uh, does this radio show and is just yeah. always around books. I just feel like storytelling and the power of stories is a very real thing. And so that's what was cool and what hit me so hard with this book. Thank you. I, yeah, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it's been the, the language, I think, is just one of the most extraordinary adaptations in human existence. And, and we've been telling stories for as long as we've had language. This is a million plus years. So, you know, although storytelling itself in the United States, a lot of it having to do with the way capitalism works, it becomes sort of a cultural artifact. Um, but I, I think the reality is, is the ways in which we listen and tell stories is primarily one of the first things that makes us human. It's 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 one of the primary things in, to help us survive. Yes, I completely agree with that. So let's talk about New Orleans in this book a little bit. So, um, of course, at least part, parts of the book, most of the book takes place in New Orleans, and part of it takes place in the years leading up to the Great Depression. Um, another part takes place, like, during and after Katrina, as you were saying. So wh- why did you feel New Orleans was a good setting for this story? Yeah. You know, I um, my, my father's from Ecuador, um, so I've been going my whole life um, to Ecuador. And the first time I went to um, New Orleans, I, I felt very instinctively, viscerally, that it was a Latin American city. <laughs> I know a lot of people say, you know, it's the northernmost Latin American city. Um, but I, I, I truly felt that, and I felt like it is the port of entry for an enormous amount of American culture and society. So it's this liminal space between continents. And that's how I always felt growing up. Uh, My mother's family is Lithuanian Jewish. So growing up between histories and between continents and Spanish jars and architecture, um, it all made sense to me at a very early age. Um, I, I knew when I was young, I always wanted to write about the city, but had never had the gumption <laughs> until I was an adult to to attempt to do so. Um, that being said, as far as the purpose of this story, there, I think it's an untold, there's so much of an untold story of Latin American exiles and refugees who, who early on did end up in New Orleans um, in the early 20th century. And we're, we're seeing that, as, especially after Katrina, a lot of Central Americans, um, settling and making families and homes and in New Orleans as well. So it's this return almost um, to history. And I, I think if you're going to talk about returning to history, New Orleans is predominantly <laughs> the, the best city <laughs> in the United States that, that does that. Um, so I, I, as someone who was Latino, it, it, it made a lot of sense to me to, to look at a port of exile like New Orleans. And you do such a good job of plugging Donna Moreau's writing into the 
publishing world at the time um, of like leading up to the Great Depression. So I was wondering how like what kind of research you did for that specific time period and and did you look at things about publishing during that time period to be able to do that? I did, yeah. So I was able to to contact historians. I was able to look at just a wealth of information online. And then, of course, the historical record. Um, there's so many wonderful historical societies in the in the French Quarter that are very available when you just email them, <laughs> when you just have some questions. They're definitely um, always willing to talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the explosion, I mean, New Orleans has, has, has given birth to genre. It's given birth to literary movements. It's given birth to language itself and the ways in which I think Americans talk. So much of it comes, you know, from the Mississippi Delta all the way through to New Orleans. So in, in the process of, of really looking and setting the stage, so to speak, as far as the literary history of New Orleans, that was just like an acute joy um, to be able to do that research and want to get it right. Is, you know, simultaneously, a lot of this explosion um, was happening um, in the early 20th century as New Orleans um, was increasingly becoming a port of call for Caribbean refugees. So it, it doesn't surprise me um, that there would be such an explosion in the literary South uh, in the early 20th century following America's involvement in Latin America and the Caribbean, um, our, our, our terrible military involvement, which created refugees, and a lot of people came to the South. Um, we, we always hear the story of those who came to New York and Chicago, and it was more interesting to me, you know, the invisible stories of, of those who ended up in the shores of New Orleans. Definitely. And did you get any, like, what was the coolest sort of fact about literary New Orleans at that time that you discovered in your research? Yeah. So I um, I became increasingly jealous that I wasn't living in the Marigny in 1921 <laughs> because there was this this enormous um, mix of, of, of people. So there's longstanding Haitian families. There were Dominican families. There were, um, you know, as we say in Spanish, mestizos. There were mixed cultures. And from that, I found that there were artists and writers Bohemians living right next to each other. You know, there are rare moments in a city's history in which people coalesce in a way which produces great literature and art. And the early 20th century in the Marigny, and of course throughout all of New Orleans, but there was sort of this coalescence of of people there. And, you know, I can't help when I visit and when I lived in New Orleans to just walk around and and want to nostalgically <laughs> live in a time I've never experienced. Um, it was absolutely cool um, to see the way that that further influenced uh, literature and art throughout the entire um, United States. That is is really cool. I don't know much about New Orleans, well, the literary period specifically at that time, yeah. um, but I bet that was so fascinating. It's the time when my grandfather was born and grew up um, wow. in the 20s, so... It, uh, you know, I know a lot about that time from his stories, but um, but not specifically the the literature stuff. So I I just find that time fascinating as well. Yeah, and and then the literature that we do know of the city, you know, the more the more popularized literature, you have people coming through New Orleans, like on a weekly basis. I I was just extraordinarily amazed at how a relatively smaller port city became such a hub for some of the 20th century's biggest giants. 
it's absolutely it's it, it, it's astounding to me and i think that sort of historical record um is critical and i think something new orleans does quite well that other cities um have trouble with is there's a remembrance and there's a respect for that history mm-hmm. um and it's not erased you know one of the saddest facts of of Chicago, we have this amazing writer called Nelson Algren. He wrote in the 50s and 60s, and, you know, he grew up in this, you know, very sort of multiracial neighborhood, and, you know, now his old home, there's just a highway that goes through it. Ooh. Where in, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that, made, that hit me right there. <laughs> I know, I know. There's a bar that he used to go to that still exists. So that's nice. <laughs> um but there's a highway right through it. And and not to say that it doesn't happen in, in New Orleans as it sort of, you know, became modernized for the 21st century. But the fact is, is there's this sort of like visceral respect um, for that history that I always found endearing and, and, and really powerful. That's true. We do have a reverence for yeah. history here um, in a way that isn't necessarily the same in a lot of other places that I've been. Correct. And I agree. so with, with your book, too, this book is so full of ideas. <laughs> There's like so many different things. You explore everything from displacement and exile to, I don't know, climate change and self-discovery and friendship and connection. And there's so much in this book. So I'm just wondering, you know, I know sometimes writers think about this stuff ahead of time. Sometimes it doesn't. So I'm just wondering about your process there. And if you thought about ahead of time what themes you wanted to evoke from this book or if they just kind of emerged when you were writing. Yeah. You know, the only theme that I think I fell onto early on was exile. Um, just as a starting point, I, I, tend, I do tend to write sentence by sentence, and I tend to plan and structure after I have a first draft down. So I, I wasn't, you know, gunning for these themes, and I'm, I'm glad that they do come across to readers. Um, but the, the initial theme, if I had anything, or the initial issue, or the initial question, I like to think of it as questions, the initial question I had was, you know, what makes of us exiles and then what happens when an exile arrives? It, it, you know, it's, it's a big American question, um, but I think all the other themes sort of become, it's a centrifugal theme around which I think a lot of the other ones were discovered by accident or sort of built into it. Um, you know, an example would be you know, the idea of the multiverse or parallel universes. You know, mm-hmm. my, my father's an immigrant. I grew up biracial. So, you know, I spent a lot of my life navigating different universes different cultures and and, and different languages and continents. And so that, you know, that metaphor for parallel stories and parallel worlds made sense to me. I I don't so much, I didn't plan for it. It it came more from a very visceral place that I spent so much of my childhood feeling like I was between universes. And that is fascinating to me as well, um, because it it is. um, And, you know, I, I, I did not have to be in the in different universes growing up. And so I think that's a really cool parallel to make of this these like multiverses that you have yeah. to live in. Um, that's a, a really cool comparison. Well, and there's this like multiplicity to the uh, North American experience that I think we've always had bad metaphors for, you know, the, the, the soup or, <laughs> the, you know, right. or the, however, you know, the melting pot. Um, it never felt right to me. It always felt that there was much more of a complex 
historical tradition. And, and, and you have in the United States now, you have more and more um, children and people of color. You have more and more people who are biracial, triracial. And so you have this multiplicity that I think we're, we're contending with that is a very, very beautiful and, and complex thing. And, you know, I, I didn't set out, like I said, I only really wanted to write about the process of exile. Um, and I didn't set out with that, but, you know, just by happenstance of being growing up biracial and feeling that multiplicity in my day-to-day life, it it made sense when I started writing about it, and I just wanted to take it forward. And And it definitely comes out in this book as well. And I'm wondering if there's anything cool that you edited out of the book. Like, do you have any good, like, deleted scenes that yeah. you could share? So, yeah. So, I, oh, I love this question, actually. <laughs> um, there are, um, so I spent, I did spend a lot of time, you know, for every story inside a story that was kept, there were maybe, like, one or two that was erased. Um And I definitely had an enormous amount of fun writing instead of a five-page summary of a Donna Morose um, sequel, A Model Earth. The original draft was 50 pages. Oh, wow. So I I had to cut it. It made no sense to have a (laughs) 50-page summary of a science fiction novel. I, I, I I was having so much joy writing it. I remember at one point my wife, who is a visual artist, and I think one of the greatest editors, accidental editors in North America came in and she's like, are you still writing the summary <laughs> of the science fiction novel? And I was like, I am. She's like, okay, you, you got to stop at some point. <laughs> yeah, at, this, uh, at that point, you're just writing another book. <laughs> I'm just writing, yeah, exact, exactly. I'm just, okay, accidentally writing a science fiction novel now. <laughs> um, so I did cut it and uh, the five page summary is more in line with, with the structure and it feels much better for the book, but... I do have this uh, 50-page thing floating around the ether. (laughs) Which I really hope that you write that. I would love to read that book uh, (laughs) because, uh, like, a little bit of a spoiler, but in this book, in this sequel, New Orleans is a spaceship. Yeah. And it is the coolest thing, and and I really want to read this book. So if you write it, I'm sure you'll find a readership. (laughs) Okay, I'm on it. I'm on it. (laughs) So tell us what's next up for you. What are you currently working on? Yeah, um, so I'm definitely turning a little bit into um, trying to figure out how to write creative nonfiction personal essays. Um, I'm, I'm exploring that more. And I am starting the process, the sort of happy wandering stages of writing a second novel about an Ecuadorian ecologist in the Amazon and her son, who is a census taker in Chicago in the year 2050. Ooh, that will be interesting. Yeah. So um, it, the happy, happy wandering stages, it gives me an excuse to buy like as many books as possible on the Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, for one, can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. You're welcome. And where can people find you um, and your work if they want to see or hear more from you? Yeah, they can look at my website, michaelsabata.com. I'm on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, So feel free Happy to add me. I do really like to post about weird science and science fiction stuff. That sounds good to me. I'm a (laughs) sci-fi person uh, for sure. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being with me today. Thank you. This was such such a joy. Thank you so much. I've been talking with Michael Zapata, author of The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. 
You can meet him at the Tennessee Williams Festival here in New Orleans, March 25th through the 29th. He will also be reading at Octavia Books on March 27th at 6 p.m. You've been listening to The Writers' Forum, a weekly production of WRBH. You can catch this show every Thursday at 3 p.m. and again on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This show and all of WRBH's programs can be found on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Podcasts. I'm Candace Huber. Thanks for listening. Until next time.